Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist Oliver Berkman. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hi, Krista. Oh, hi. Um, just turning up my volume. Hi. Lovely to be with you. And Likewise. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. You know, I'm actually... Um, for most of the last 18 months, if anybody asked me that question, I would give them a true answer, which whether they wanted it or not. But <laughs> but I'm actually all right today. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Yorkshire. Yes. How That's is right. that? I am loving it. Oh. Um, yeah, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's only three months in, so maybe mm-hmm. it's a honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, yeah, it's wonderful here. Yeah. Uh, kind I'd of love wild to be over countryside there. north of north of York. So. Yeah. Um, Zach, can, I'm just afraid to start talking that we'll say something that I want to be on air. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I will just. Oh, that's a little, I'm glad you asked. Um, oh no, it is recording. It is recording. It just doesn't stay red. The little button. Um, Yes, yeah, yeah. Are we good? Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, it, 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 where did you grow up? Are you from Yorkshire? Uh, well, I was born in Liverpool, but I, yeah, I grew up in York. Uh, just you down did? The, just down the street. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Um, so I think you might know my, my, my first question that I, that I like to ask in... Most interviews. Um, I'm just curious um, if there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. And I have this memory that there's some Quaker connection for you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, was, I was raised as a, as a Quaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think as we're going to discuss, I feel like, um, well, you know, I feel like time management is a very is almost a misleading uh, title for this book <laughs> um, that you've written, because it really is about great existential questions of meaning. Um, I mean, I am curious about uh, if that Quaker um, environment shaped this in any way that you think of now, This where, where you've come in, in terms of, and really not just about this, about... You know, you got you have this special fascination in in your journalism with this world of self help and wellness and kind of spiritual searching around the edges of that. I mean, do you think that emerged from that early life? It's such an interesting question. I mean, I think of my Quaker upbringing as pretty non spiritual. Actually, it was you know, I'm there's a very strong emphasis on social and political. Uh, yeah activism, all, all the rest of that. Um, I, I think in some ways it, it has to be 
present there, right? And sort of in a in an interest in the the big questions underneath the the, the seemingly superficial ones. Hmm. Although I don't know, I have ambivalent feelings about Quakerism as well. I, don't, I think in some ways I might be I might be reacting against some of that spirit as well as as well as being you know directly influenced by it. Yeah. Well, I I wonder if. Um, I hear you. I mean, I think I think the Quaker tradition in, in the UK also has that very strong social and impulse in it. I don't know. Maybe you maybe you were missing the, the spiritual search. <laughs> there's, there's something in modern Quakerism, as I took it, I think that is. Yeah, there's something a little subdued <laughs> mm-hmm. and a little sort of, uh, I don't know how easy it is to be a sort of, how much focus there is in, in modern Quakerism on sort of letting your individuality shine and letting sort of individual people be the kind of messy, mm. imperfect mm-hmm. people that they are. I'm sure most many Quakers would object to that claim strongly but i'm just talking right. about the what i sort of yeah one side of it that i feel like i maybe took on so how did this interest in this kind of topic emerge in you where where did that come from or when when how did that start emerging well a long time ago when i was still at school i was i i started to be the kind of person who was always looking around for systems of organizing my time and mm. uh you know i was always the person with the really beautifully designed exam preparation timetables whether ah. i actually was any good at the exam preparation is a separate question but you know the person with the multicolored felt tip pens and uh all the rest of that and i sort of uh, i mean you know i think this my most more recent work and most recent book is a sort of about the disillusionment with this kind of attempt to neatly organize and control time and and life but but the the sort of more naive attempt to just do it uh is goes back with me hmm. uh, a very long way um and then i ended up writing this column for the guardian for so many years that it yeah. was sort of with me which is how i first a, found you right right yeah. it was sort of with me while i changed in all sorts of ways and in many ways i think it was kind of public weekly therapy in public in a way um and i sort of went from one kind of person with respect to these kinds of issues uh, and ended up another one remind uh, me the title the, the title of the column it was called this column will change your life yeah right, right. i spent a lot of time explaining to people that this was meant to be sardonic and not incredibly grandiose <laughs> Yeah, but you also were you were writing you were bringing it into the world in a time in which people started looking for things that promised to change your life. I think with a new fervor, a new, or at least a new uh, openness about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I, definitely, I was sort of backing into these topics. Mm-hmm. Partly, this might be a Quakery thing. I think it's definitely a British thing. Yeah, maybe a male thing to be kind of uneasy writing about happiness and the reverse of ha- and the opposite of happiness and and questions of meaning that um that can seem sort of embarrassing for a range of reasons i think and so i was sort of backing into it by writing about it in a 
sardonic fashion, hopefully not a hugely cynical one, but in mm. a way, losing my cynicism about it was the was what marked the experience of <laughs> right, writing it for, right. for so many years, becoming, becoming more sincere. Yeah, and here we are. You've written a very <laughs> sincere book. Um, so now, I, I almost feel like 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals does not give away the fact <laughs> that you're talking you're talking about existential things um i uh i mean it's you start to get it as soon as you open the first page but do i i had this memory that i looked the book up when it came out in the uk and it has a different title or did it have an original title that was different from this uh, it has a, a different subtitle in the uk subtitle which is, yeah sorry it's called 4000 weeks time and how to use it and that was actually the title on my original book proposal uh -huh. a long time ago. So that's revealing, isn't it? Because when you got <laughs> to the U.S., you, time management was on the cover, which is which appeals to the way um, the oh, I mean, so much right the way this culture in particular tries to m master time. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I think that part of the reason that title wasn't used in the UK was a sort of an idea that people wouldn't be into what they thought was a, a business book, right? maybe, or a book for achievement in the world, which obviously is what Americans really do want, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, I, I really like the, the time management for mortals phrase, I got to confess, just because it brings together that very sort of... Uh, quotidian and worldly and you know in a way sort of shallow seeming I suppose uh, mm. idea right alongside you know mortality the death, serious the big, fact the big of stuff. mortality yeah. Yeah. yeah well so you know I like to kind of dwell for a minute with I mean I've just I this this that you know what time is and what we do with it um is something that's very interesting to me and in, in some writing I was doing in the last few years Spend a lot of time, you know, time thinking about, and you do this too in your writing, you know, even the way we speak of time and these phrases we use, passing time, saving time, spending time, borrowed time, lost time, wasted time. Um, what, you know, and I, I, I think so much about how in, in the West um, and in, in, in capitalism, you know, time got instrumentalized and 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 Newton gave us this clockwork world, and and then a hundred years ago Einstein came along and kind of revealed that that's not actually how time works, um, ultimately. But we structure our world with time as kind of this bully and this taskmaster. Um, and I'm just curious about you know you you know how do you if, if I ask you you know what is time? Um, how do you start to answer that question? now after having delved into this oh i definitely know much less <laughs> what the answer is now than than when i started but i mean i think that it's very very i'm talking from a personal and psychological perspective now yeah. i do not claim to be able to talk about time from a, a physics perspective but it's it's one of those things i think i'm always interested in these things in my work you know that that makes that it's incredibly difficult to pin down once you really focus or try to focus precisely on it. And so, 
yeah, we, as you say, we we fall immediately into these kind of resource terminology, yes. this idea yes. that it's something we have and can use well or use badly, yeah. uh, make better use of, sell to somebody, buy from somebody. Yeah. Um, and that is true so far as it goes, but then you run up against all sorts of ways in which you're taking that approach to something that actually isn't really a resource in the same way that money or raw materials is a resource. And then the other thing that, you know, I'm far from the first to note, but we can we only manage to talk about it using spatial metaphors. And we sort of, I anyway, think about time in a spatial metaphor. So yeah. the sense of whether I have enough time to get to the end of my to-do list by the end of this week, that's to do with fitting objects inside a container somehow. Yeah. And none of this is actually... <laughs> what time is right we don't have it we don't have i don't have five hours to get through my work at a given period i just i have this one moment and anything could happen in the next one yeah yeah we think of it as compartments and they move and it goes forward which is what einstein said it doesn't work that way (laughs) you um you bring up this language i don't know if this was of heidegger but this but this notion of being time that we are time. I think this is an amazingly powerful thought, even while it's hard again to pin down exactly what the the thought is. It occurs in Heidegger um, in some famously sort of obscure ways. I've also, since writing the book, discovered that it occurs in the Zen, the work of the Zen uh, founder Dogen. Um, this idea that our time or our existence in time defines us so completely that it might make more sense to think of ourselves as being a stretch of time. And what one thing that does right away when I let that idea sort of percolate through me is it, it, it gets rid of this notion that we're talking about a relationship here where there's me and then there's the time that I have uh, with all the problems that that leads to, you know, like obsessively mm. trying to wring more efficiency out of that time or or feeling guilty because um i've sort of let it dribble away without without using it it collapses that distinction doesn't it so that it's just this sense that like i am here for a few years and i don't exist outside of the moment that that i'm in i can't and so that sort of it's a kind of like a psychological maneuver. I feel like we spend a lot of our lives in, or maybe I, maybe I'm talking about me in my many years as a obsessive um, student of sort of productivity systems and time management systems. But it's like we're trying to get out of time and on top of time so that we can yeah. be the air traffic controller or the right. the, the yeah. director. And of course, if we are time, that immediately begins to seem like, um, you know, Baron Munchausen pulling himself out of a swamp by his own hair or something. It's obviously it's obviously going to lead to some absurd results because the, the, the situation is not the way that we're approaching it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what you're... What you've, you explore and just name um, is that so many premises um, that we kind of just accept collectively and structure um, 
not just not just organizational life or institutional life, but but um, but our you know our life, our personal lives. We, that, 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 that these premises just don't hold up um, to the truth of reality. Um, and so, for example, you know that if we only managed our time correctly. Um, we could get everything done that we want to get done. Like this notion that we could get on top of things. Right. And that sounds like such an obvious statement, but so much of the way I live, um, you know, tries to be in defiance of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's... we're in this kind of um, split situation, right? As people, we we are material and extremely finite and limited in our amount of time, the control we have over how that time unfolds. And then we have this capacity as as people with minds to to sort of assign importance or matteringness, whatever, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to an infinite number of things, things, ambitions, obligations, doesn't matter whether they're sort of ostensibly positive or negative. You can have a a million times more of those than you're ever got any reason to believe you'll have, you'll have the capacity to, to do. And so I think one of the ways a lot of us spend our time is by, and our lives is by trying to sort of scheme to find new ways to stuff that infinite quantity into the finite into the finite container um that's obviously not going to work yeah um but it's uh you know it's an incredibly tantalizing prospect because i assume that the 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 sort of hidden promise of the idea that you might ever get there is the promise of cheating death right i mean it's the promise of not being governed by the the terms and conditions of uh what it is to be human and and this is where you know you walk into time management, but you actually uh, unfold um, that um, this is about the meaning of our lives. So this is about the big existential questions, and you know you you write about this feeling that goes deep. And again, I think that's true. But again, naming it is something else. To you know, said the sense that despite all this activity, even the relatively privileged among us rarely get around to doing the right things. I was just really intrigued the more that I managed to get some distance on my own odd and neurotic approaches to trying to manage my time and definitely saw it in other people and read accounts of it, that this effort to um, achieve mastery, this effort to sort of reach the, 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 the state of feeling controlling and secure with respect to time, it's not just that it doesn't work. It's that it seems to do the opposite of of working. It seems to um, push the things that matter the most further and further over the horizon. So the really sort of a mundane example I give in the book is just that if you, when I was in my early days as a newspaper writer, um, the better I got at processing tasks and you know getting through those lists, 
the more prone I was to postponing the things that really, really mattered, because I would fall into this notion of this idea that um, I needed lots of spare time and attention and focus to really do those things well. Yeah. And that in the meantime, the, the diligent thing to do was to get rid of all these little less important tasks that were tugging at my attention to, you know, clear the decks. Clear the I decks. I think this is so a really deep and things. important metaphor, this, this yeah. idea of clearing the decks. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that you can spend a lifetime clearing the decks because actually what happens is they're never clear and the act of clearing them causes them to fill up again faster for various yes. reasons. And that way you can sort of, you can just never get around to the things that you know or believe are the most important things. And I began slowly and late to notice that that was exactly what was happening in my, in my own life. Yeah, and I think um, you know some other truths you tell are just just kind of you know again articulating that uh, what we actually know about life is that it's the things that 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 our lives are as much made by the things we couldn't plan for, didn't see coming, that surprised us. Um, I mean, maybe maybe almost completely made up of that, um, and therefore, if we could, <clears throat> if we could sort of make our plans, get everything done that we think we want to do, have to do, we would be missing so much. We would possibly be missing out on what matters. Um, and I think a really key takeaway. And that's just true, right? That is just true. Um, that just happens, whether you like it or not. But I think something that you say that really, really is settling in me is that it's not just that you can't do everything and that you don't even want to, you know, that that's not even a desirable task. Um, it's that in order to... In order to, I don't, you know, let's not say manage our time, but in order to live fully and kind of um, in a more gracious way with time, um, we one of the one of the disciplines is that you that we actually have to forego not just things that we don't want to do. It's not just saying like, okay, okay, I won't clear my inbox every day, which I do, which is a real problem in my life, right? It's that I won't <laughs> say that. It's not that I get to say that, that I just won't do this thing that I know is stressful, but I do it. It's that we're going to have to say, forego things that we'd actually like to do because you have to make choices about what matters. And yeah, and that, you already are making those choices, right? We already are. We are making we are, those you know, choices. Condemned to choose, as the existentialists say. Um, it's just that we can choose whether to do that consciously or not. Right. We're in a situation where there is no reason to believe that what matters will fit into the <laughs> capacities that we have. Just yeah. no reason. And, and um, I mean, that happens over the course of a life, but also just on the level of a of a day, there's something in me that persists in thinking that there must be some way to spend as much time as I'd like to, you know, writing, uh, connecting with people, uh, with my young son, um, in 
personal reflection and meditation, you know, I, but yeah. there's just, it, 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 there's no reason why that should be the case. I, I, of course I want more than, uh, than, than reality permits. It's just, it's just how, how things go. And so you do have to sort of go through some kind of a defeat or a surrender, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, or at least, you know, in a, in a, uh, begin to do that. Um, when you sort of, you see what is, what is off the table for, for, you in your life which is ever getting to that sense of really feeling that you did everything that that was legitimately calling for your attention i'm just i'm just thinking about how i mean i was thinking about children but I, this is true of other you know when we the experiences people talk about as transformative often are engrossing right these things that even though um we wouldn't have known to to make the time like they said it stops feeling like carving out time and yeah. you know and i so i think and and i it was just it just occurred to me and i think one thing you know having children um is such a shock to especially you know the way people live now where you you know you might have a career and then you and then you become a parent it's such a shock with people <laughs> who have organized their lives you know relatively well and then it all falls apart right it all falls apart and the yeah. thing about children is that they don't wait right like they have to eat they have to sleep they they they're crying um so there's no you know you you attend to them um and that choice falls away but it then but it's the best choice right <laughs> it's such a great choice um uh and then right, that the, is yeah that for other people it'd be other passions right um that 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 also yeah anyway yeah no I, and it's marked by that um that sense i mean obviously there's lots and lots of joy and hilarity yeah involved but it's also marked by that very curious sense of doing something that you know when it comes to being up at all hours of the night with a newborn or changing diapers or all sorts of humdrum aspects it's marked as well by that strange experience of not particularly enjoying the the the, the activity you're doing in the present moment but also knowing that it's the that you're in the right place. Yeah. You know, that you're that you're doing you're doing the right thing. You're exhausted. You're completely your exhausted for good reason. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And and so much of what you know this really this idea of time and how we use it, what it is, how we use it. It it also really ends up being a way into. What is a deep spiritual truth at the heart of all the great traditions and also just, you know, the psychology behind them, um, that what we pay attention to and and also just our understanding of the mind, which is increasingly sophisticated, that what we pay attention to defines us and defines reality for us. It's another example of the way that it doesn't really make sense to talk about time as a resource that you can use and put aside and save again attention what we give our time to it it it's too def- it's too all encompassing to to treat as a as a resource i think it just again it just is it just is life and therefore you know 
this is why it's so important to be aware of what you're giving your attention to and to understand that all sorts of people who like your attention don't necessarily have your best interests at heart and and to sort of you know it, it for me anyway it sort of ups that sense that it does really matter um from from moment to moment what i am filling my mind with because nothing could matter more it's that life is just the aggregate of all those moments uh where i'm filling my filling my mind with something um yeah yeah and this um this approach to these questions then um is it, it kind of shines a different it, it's it's a, it's an interesting nuance of the light that we shine on how the digital worlds what the the digital world right. in in is as part of human life um what it's doing to us right that um how the digital world kind of ratchets up kind of these bedrock uh dilemmas that we're talking about in an existential way i mean just you know even the language of the attention economy um, or persuasive design, which you talk about in this context. I mean, I wonder if you would just kind of, you know, and of course these are phrases I've heard before, but I feel like you are opening them up in, an, in such an interesting new way in this. I mean, there were two points I felt I really wanted to try to make about attention beyond that one, that it just, you know, it com- it, it is what our life consists of. Um, and... One of them, yes, was then how how central this question of attention mining technologies are. You know, the business model of all sorts of these social media platforms and others is is just to keep us attending to them as, as much as possible. And it's not that they want to make us angry or happy for that matter. It's just mm-hmm. that they want to learn whatever it is that holds our attention and and maximize the amount of that 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 we're shown um and if that means you know political radicalization then fine from the point of view of the business model and if it means uh cute videos about puppies then fine too um it's all it's very sort of um uh value free in in that sense but the point that really i think is so important there is that this doesn't just take your attention for the time that you're using it, right? This is what I really began to notice when I got um, most deeply into social media is that um, it wouldn't just be the hour that you wild away on a social media platform that was that was changed by that hour. It would be your whole mental map of the world, your whole way of engaging with reality. And so I would have this experience, which I've got reason to believe is not unique, uh, where I would witness some argument on social media, possibly participate in it, but very possibly be too much of a coward to participate in it or too sensible, <laughs> depending on your uh, definition. And But then like three hours later, I'd be making dinner or at the gym or something. And, and in my mind, I would be prosecuting arguments against right. these incredible idiots whose views I'd had to be... Uh, I'd had to be exposed to earlier in the day. And I mean, that's a strange way to be. (laughs) Um, Firstly, because it obviously is 
changing what my attention is on for much longer than that initial hour. And then secondly, because these people, I mean, they probably don't know I exist at all in most yeah. cases, that um, that I'm uh, in a sort of state of fury about. Um, and then, yeah, the second thing I think is so important about all this is the way that we collaborate with it. We talk about digital distraction as if you're sitting there working on something and it's all a beautiful, serene situation. And then suddenly um, a social media platform sort of comes in somehow and grabs you away and uh, it's all against your will. Right. But it really isn't. We want to be interrupted. You know, we want to put aside the things that are important but difficult for the things that are not important but but feel better. And I think that is ultimately because it's a way of feeling uh, unconstrained by reality in a way that is all totally connected with this stuff about, you know, wanting not to feel limited by time and finitude. You know, I want to read um, just I, I this point you just made about um, about how about really taking in that it's not just the time we that the, the actual number of minutes we spend um, giving our attention to digital places, but how that then infuses all the, the time that follows. Um, I just want to read this, this part of your book, which is, is just so good. So you said, so if social media convinces you, for example, that violent crime is a far bigger problem in your city than it really is, you might find yourself walking the streets with unwarranted fear, staying home instead of venturing out and avoiding interactions with strangers. If all you ever see of your ideological opponents online is their very worst behavior, you're like you're liable to assume that even family members who differ from you politically must be similarly irredeemably bad, making relationships with them hard to maintain. So it's not simply that our devices distract us from more important matters. It's, it's that they change how we're defining important matters in the first place. Um, a little bit later, you, 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 you know, you, other examples... Um, you talk about, um, you mean, you know, if you, another, just another example is, um, mm. you said, yeah, you gave this example of, you know, you've, you're, you're on Twitter and then you're thinking about it when you're gym, with the gym later. But you also said, you know, or my newborn son would do something adorable and I'd catch myself speculating about how I might describe it in a tweet <laughs> as if what mattered wasn't the experience but my unpaid role as a provider of content for Twitter. I mean, I think, I think just bringing all this into relief is, is sobering and important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think that um, it, it's, just, it's, just, yeah, it's just important to be able to see what is going on here and how we are collaborating with it. Not, I would say, to live in a state of sort of permanently beating ourselves up about it, because as others have noted, um, Tristan Harris, the technology critic, is very eloquent on this. You know, there are, as he puts it, there are a thousand people on the other side of the screen yeah. paid to generate these effects and these desires in us. So I don't want to be someone who's saying like, you know, it's all a matter of personal responsibility. I don't think it is, but I think it's on this topic and on a whole lot of others in this area, you know, it's really useful to see how you are collaborating with the situation without realizing it, because there is a kind of internal refusal to collaborate that you can enact. Um, even if you can't, you know, uh, totally change the environment of digital distraction and, you know, uh, 
stop yourself accessing these uh, platforms or, or anything like that. You can you can hold it in a different way. You can you can understand what the situation really is and um, and get at least a little of a, of a gap for choice making. Well, you also you wrote this interesting piece in the Guardian <clears throat> about uh, a certain mindset that has taken hold um, in this in this world of limitless media. Um, that so many people feel that th- that there's this. You know, there used to be this kind of duty of the citizen to, you know, to be informed. That's that's an idea that's been around a long time. But you you kind of looked at it and described it as that we so that but that was also in a world of scarcity um and not right. limitlessness where you know you had to you had to do some work to find the news and and it wasn't it wasn't constantly being refreshed every five minutes. <laughs> and you you said you know that there's this that that has shifted, and again that we haven't been necessarily this hasn't been necessarily a conscious, um, intentional, of aware self aware shift, or and certainly not thinking about the consequences of not just a duty to be informed, but a duty to not turn away. Um, from all the information that's out there. And like you say, the belief that we're morally obliged to stay plugged in. Um, yeah, that's that's so helpful too. I, I really started to notice this, you know, just a few years ago, I guess it was four or five years ago. Um, the way that more and more people I, I knew and certainly people I observed on social media and to some extent myself... Um, yeah, they'd sort of shifted the center of gravity. You had the sense that they they saw themselves as primarily existing sort of in the news cycle. And then things like what they did in their house and uh, their family or where they worked and the street they lived on were kind of somehow secondary. And that they sort of fundamentally lived in the drama of the news. And I think part of the reason for that is that um, these attentional technologies give us a feeling of, in, of acting on it, even just... Yeah. Even just scrolling is more active than than watching a TV bulletin mm-hmm. and commenting and retweeting and and all the rest of it is obviously significantly more active. And so there's this feeling that you're somehow doing your bit. You're participating. Right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this gets called slacktivism, this idea that we're going to change the world just by sort of... Um, uh, preaching to our tribe or against the other one uh on social media but yeah i think it i think it, it it's especially difficult because probably nobody who is um spending their whole day distracted by celebrity gossip is 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 under any illusions that this is somehow some high duty of citizenship in a democracy that they're performing. But I think you very easily can think that when the substance is the the drama of national and international mm-hmm. news. Mm-hmm. Um, but because there is so much more of it than our attention could ever um, take up, you know, it, it can't be the case that, that, that you've got to pay attention to it all. And I think, and I think I argued in that piece, it, it might be the case you have to sort of proactively not care about a huge number of very important issues in the world just so that you can 
meaningfully care about hmm. one or two of them. Like it might be that if you take the climate very seriously, it's it's okay for you not to stay informed about um, any number of other seemingly important social issues or about the state of the the state of the pandemic or something like that. You know, it might it might be that you had to do that just in order to consolidate your your efficacy. In yeah, the world a bit. or you decide that's for other people. You know that other people will be caring in that field. Right. It's not because it doesn't matter. It's because yeah. too many things matter yeah. for a person to encompass. Yeah. And and that and that gets back to that point that you know each and every one of us, um, you know, to to do what to do what we what we actually mean idealistically when we say manage time. Um, which is which is which is which is structure our lives um, in a meaningful way, um, not merely a productive way. Um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to not do a lot of things that we would like to do, in order just as as you said, in order to really invest and really be present to um, the things. Um, that are going to make our lives worth living and that we're, I don't know, I use this language, you know, that we are specifically called to either mm. by where we are or who we are, what our gifts are, or, or just the place and that we find ourselves in and its needs. Uh, yeah, I think that um, it's this, it, it entails this ability to sort of tolerate a kind of anxiety that is built into that situation, right? That is... Uh, that actually dissipates a bit if you're willing to tolerate it, but mm. that is is this uneasiness of knowing that you are neglecting things, that there are people and causes and work projects that have an absolutely legitimate claim on your attention and are not going to get it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not easy, especially if you've got any form of kind of people-pleasing motivation in you which i or conflict aversion which i, I most certainly have yeah <laughs> um it's yeah you have to sort of pick a fight with with the world in a in a way <laughs> at least in order to focus meaningfully on a few things well and you know something else that's in, involved in all of this um that is also just about the strange human condition is you know as you said sure there are a thousand people creating that, what is it called, persuasive design for my attention on the other end of my devices. But on the other hand, you know, I know some of those people and, you know, they're, they're not all evil. And the truth is that um, one of the strange things about us is that we are, we are so distractible, right? It's not just that, I think you say, it's not just that we submit to distraction. We throw ourselves at it so readily, Um there's this mystery um, that is true, I think, of all of us. Um, I don't know if like people listen to my show and they think that, you know, I sit around thinking big, deep thoughts all the time and only reading, you know, books about the meaning of life and don't know how many, you know, <laughs> how many murder mysteries I read. That, you know, that even like I'm, I'm we're all, we are uncomfortable, you say this, we are uncomfortable turning to what matters um and 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 the and and that so it's that it's, it's that collusion right it's that collaboration that collusion with this this aspect of the human condition yeah um mary oliver has this lovely phrase the intimate interrupter to refer to this this trait inside us that that wants us to do anything apart from the thing that five minutes ago 
we knew was the thing that that needed our our attention and our and our care um it is mysterious and it's mysterious in in the way that it how it feels but i think it it can be explained you know mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. that it is not ultimately uh just completely mystifying that we that we turn away from difficult stuff whether it's you know challenging work projects or important conversations with people we're close to that make us uneasy all of these things it's not a coincidence that the things that matter trigger these feelings that we'd rather run away from into the pleasing and numbing and comfortable world of distraction right i mean it's it's it they bring us up against our edge when i sit down to do a piece of writing i the stakes are high because i care about it and i want it to be good and i have no control over whether i'm going to prove up to it or whether other people are going to receive it well so i'm in this this um familiar human situation of of really caring that things turn out a certain way and realizing that i don't get to say whether they mm-hmm. whether they will and you can by analogy you can see how that would be true of a difficult conversation with a partner say um it's really important but it might turn into a big argument and a fight or Mm -hmm. it might just leave me feeling emotionally vulnerable and you know and it really matters um so yeah i mean things that matter bring us to our limits and it actually changes that one of the sort of breakthroughs for me in thinking about my own personal struggles with distraction the way i put it in the book is you know it is not the case that you're really that you're trying to have a conversation with your spouse say and and listen to what they're saying but you're distracted by your phone that you're scroll actually scrolling through under the dinner table where no one can see yeah. it's that scrolling through your phone under the dinner table where no one can no one can see see is what you do to avoid the discomfort of listening and of the conversation and like nothing is harder than listening i don't think yeah. um so it's it's flipped it's not it's it's not that you want to do one thing and and the the, the nasty technology is and your is phone is getting in it. the way no it's a rest it's a it's yeah. a sort of eminently forgivable and understandable but ultimately kind of weak-willed mm-hmm. uh, respite from doing what matters in that moment mm-hmm. yeah that it's hard to think of anything worth doing that doesn't take kind of effort and patience and that that spirit of surrender. And that's uncomfortable. Those things can be really uncomfortable. I, I think boredom is a really fascinating part of this, mm. if that's Say not too, too contradictory. I mean, uh, it's always really struck me how how aggressive the feeling of, of boredom is, right? We talk about it as if it's just a kind of absence of anything particularly interesting going on but to be you know a child on a sunday afternoon who doesn't want to do any of the many options being offered to them or to be with a toddler for six hours when it's just you in charge and you've got to be there and focus the whole time yeah um or even to find you know one's own very absorbing creative work suddenly incredibly boring you know it's it's a really sort of aggressive feeling and i think that the reason is 
because it isn't just an absence of interest. It is a real confrontation with the fact that you don't get to say how how your experience unfolds in that moment. You don't get to make sure that it's only full of what you wanted it to, to be. You have to stay there with the toddler. You have to be the kid shut up in the house on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so none of the specific activities are going to grab your interest because the situation is life is unfolding in a way you don't get to choose. And, and the same with, you know, creative work that isn't necessarily, that is such a sort of bumpy ride and is half the time, certainly not, not working out the way you want it to work out. I mean, it manifests as boredom, but what we call boredom, but it's really sort of a, it's a real kind of serious struggle with, with reality just implacably doing its thing regardless of yeah. how much freer you'd like to feel I think I mean if, if that makes any sense yeah and I I will say I I know I notice in myself and I I worry about about younger generations although I think they will have resources that I don't have to um, rise to this that you know how easy it is to go down a rabbit hole to fill there's a phrase fill time (laughs) which wasn't available in for most of my life um you know when standing in a line you were standing in a line that was it maybe you had somebody to talk to um or you're at the park with the kids you didn't have your phone to keep you busy or keep you entertained this is this phenomenon i think that whereby you know the the less often we have to be bored the more appalling boredom feels and it and it crops Mm. up in a slightly different way um in the context of patience and convenience right so many so many things are now do not require us to be patient do not require us to go to any inconvenience it, right, it makes the things that remain difficult more mm. infuriating. Mm-hmm. And I have a completely untested um, theory that impatience in all sorts of physical settings, like you know, people honking their horns angrily in traffic and people getting furious waiting in line, is gets worse when those same people are accustomed to not having to wait two seconds for the app to call up the song that they just thought of that they'd like to listen to or to or you know one second to Mm -hmm. find out what's happening in the world thousands of miles away it just really heightens the it it makes all the remaining uh ways in which we don't get to set the pace of reality uh all the more kind of insulting that's interesting so we get we get accustomed to this um this capi- this capitalistically uh uh designed and ref- and refined and and perfected um uh offering of convenience and then we be- we become more maladjusted to how reality in the raw actually works i, I mean <laughs> again i'm not claiming that i have <laughs> i have quantitative research here but like yeah. you know it relates to something that i always talk about because it just fascinates me so much the fact that it should be more aggravating 
to wait for a microwave than to wait for food that you've put into the oven. And more aggravating if you try to get some information from a web page and something's wrong with it and it takes 10 seconds to load than if someone just tells you, oh, that's going to have to come in the mail, that information, you're going to be waiting Mm -hmm. several days. I think that the closer technology brings us to the cusp of feeling like we are the gods of our time, the more, you know, incredibly offensive it seems <laughs> to be reminded of all the ways in which we in which we still aren't mm-hmm. um so you know you get this utterly bizarre situation where the world speeds up and gets more and more efficient and we don't and we have all this technology for saving time and it doesn't make time feel more abundant it makes us feel more impatient which mm-hmm. on the face of it should should not be the case. Yeah, and as you said, kind of as we were talking, and also it makes you feel like we should be able to do even more, and that makes everything worse. Right. No, if if you get to the point where you can answer fifty emails in an hour, the 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 socially expected standard of how many emails someone ought to be able to answer in an hour is not going to stay static. It's mm-hmm. it's going to rise so mm-hmm. that uh, so that forty or fifty is insufficient, and and so on forever. Um. So I'm really curious about how all of this, you know, this research and thinking and crafting and, you know, pondering these ideas, like how, what are the ways that you live differently or try to live differently? Um, I mean, you also have young children. Yeah. Does it start, does it become more natural if you try, if it, you know, what changes? What's changed for you? I'll try to answer it, but it's a funny direction to approach the question from, because I sort of think of, I think I'm saying the same thing ultimately, but the book was definitely the, the advice I needed to hear. And the process of writing the book and figuring out what I understood about these things was a process of sort of guiding myself in changes I needed to make. And I think, you know, I suspect that this is universal for books that purport to offer people advice, that they are on some level just chronicles of the author's own yeah. weird hang-ups. Yeah. I could only hope that Internal adventure, are, yeah. Right. I can only hope that my hang-ups are <laughs> universal enough to mm-hmm. be useful to other, other people. But, you know, this topic is compelling to me because I was, and to a significant extent remain, someone who felt like I needed to get on top of everything, otherwise absolutely terrible things would happen, who felt that if I didn't get to the end of a day having been productive to a certain level that I never seemed to reach, that I hadn't quite justified my existence, <laughs> existence yeah. on earth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I totally recognize that in myself still today. But, well, firstly, I think recognizing it is a very big difference because something has changed significantly in me that I would call, I wish there was a, I wish there was a word that meant disillusionment, but with a positive Mm. feel there may be Mm. that I'm just not thinking of it but Mm. it's I don't I see through that now so it's not that I won't ever get into the sort of frenetic hamster wheel mode of you know 
I'm going to work really, really, really hard and put all the rest of my life on hold. And in a week, I'm going to finally have reached the serene paradise of being in touch with in, on top of everything. I mean, I can fall into that, but I can see that I'm falling into it. And that's usually back away from it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it the, the moments for me where it feels different, although still a struggle, are in those transitional times in the course of a day, right? It's sort of it's getting up from my desk and switching into full on parenting mode and mm -hmm. seeing whether I, how much I'm able to sort of not carry a residue of, oh, but I was almost there. You know, I almost, I'd almost completely, mm. um, uh, you know, reached the position of perfect productivity and time mastery in my work. And now I have to leave it to go and do this. I mean, that's the bad days. The good days are I've, you know, I've done a few important things that matter. It was always off the table from the beginning that I would ever get to the end of all the things that matter. Right. And now I can go and do some things that matter in the, in the family realm. Um, so I sort of, I, I sort of, uh, I am definitely sort of more, uh, a bit more uh, at peace with those things because I no longer believe deep down that I'm going to one day get to the point where you've reached the summit and then you can just keep walking along the plateau with no, no effort that you're going to reach the top part of life where there are no problems. Whoever had that's such a, right. such a ridiculous idea, <laughs> right? but very, very alluring. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you also in, 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 at regular intervals, I mean, in the, in the writing, you, you will stop and say, you know, this is a relief. It's a relief to know that there will be neglected, missed opportunities, that there will be losses, that, that it, is, it is in the nature of vitality that there is loss. And part of this, um, part of this time management mentality that we have is that somehow you can salvage it all, that you can somehow make it, make it all possible and not have to sacrifice anything. Um, but you, 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 you say this is a liberation. I really believe this. I think that um, there is something, firstly, just an incredible relief in seeing that something you had been trying to do and that you thought your self sense of self-worth was dependent upon was sort of, what would the word be? Structurally impossible, logically impossible. Not that you just hadn't quite found enough self-discipline or the right techniques mm. or that you were uniquely kind of useless compared to all the good people, but that it's just not part of the human gift to be able to, to reach this kind of position uh, of, of sort of control and security with respect to time. So that's just a relief because you can stop or ease up on beating yourself up about something that, you know, nobody could be expected to do. And then I think, and I think this is the really deepest part of it, and I'm sure the sort of deepest struggle that I have, if you sort of want to look at it psychoanalytically in me, is is that then enables you to be here now and to show up in this moment and to sort of have faith and trust in reality to go okay if you just 
you're just here and not to need to get to this point where you feel like you've got all your ducks in a row and you know how the next X number of years are going to unfold, but just to be able to sort of abandon yourself to this moment and to sort of really be here instead of, instead of holding back and not quite being here because you haven't got to the point yet where it's all where it's all certain and where you can give yourself over to to what matters right absolutely like you have to earn that then of course now I'm sure you realize that as you start saying be here now you know you start sounding like the spiritual sages of the ages (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I mean it's um if I'm adding anything I'm sure it's not unique but if I'm adding anything that's slightly unconventional in in to that I think it is just the idea that the that the path that a path for people like me anyway to this kind of greater presence is not a kind of um uh effortful or sort of upbeat spiritual kind of attempt to put yourself into a really great Mm -hmm. mindset or something it goes through deep pessimism and seeing how much is not possible and Mm. sort of letting all that fall and fall to the ground and finding yourself just in the rubble and and putting one foot in front of the other so i mean i'm i'm sure some of the people who say be here now in the way that 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 um has come to be a cliche might might say this anyway but you know what i mean it's like it's Mm -hmm. it's um it isn't about elevating and transcending so much as about just like standing on the ground of reality. Fall. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you also have this wonderful, um, this notion of kind of the relief of cosmic, of understanding our cosmic insignificance. <laughs> <laughs> um, say something about that. Um, and why that is, why that is freeing. This may, to some extent, say unflattering things about me, but I think it's, uh, I think I'm not alone. Um, A big part of the stress that comes with the deepest questions of what I insist on calling time management, you know, deciding how to use our allotment of time on earth. I think a lot of the stress comes from a kind of... uh, egocentric focus really an idea that it is incredibly important even on the level of the universe although we probably wouldn't endorse that explicitly i think it's sort of there in the emotional pull that what we decide and whether we make the right decisions and spend our lives in the right way that it really 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 matters and i think that for me anyway some version of this is has been a real sort of source of paralysis and hmm. not doing things and and self-doubt when you are doing them and there's something incredibly again liberating in understanding a little bit more about like just how just how tiny um each of us is in the scheme of things i think it's probably not possible to fully grasp just how <laughs> insignificant uh a single lifespan is a, a, against cosmic time but it's but it's a huge sort of weight off the shoulders i think to 
to understand that um you know almost nothing anybody ever does is going to mean anything in certainly a few thousand years from from when they're from when they're doing it put it that way um and i think the other thing that this does is it it sort of reconfigures the definition of what it is to live a meaningful life right obviously one way you can go with that is into nihilism and say like well there's no then point nothing, doing anything then it doesn't matter it, at all if, right yeah but but the other way of uh thinking about that i think and i'm working partly here off the work of the philosopher ido landau is to say well why use this definition of meaning that that has to have cosmic significance why why um why burden ourselves with this kind of cruel standard that means that all sorts of things that i think we in instinctively know are meaningful uh in terms of you know raising children or working to beautify your neighborhood or writing a novel that delights a few thousand people so, you know all these things suddenly are defined as a meaning as a right. stupid way to spend your life and right. it's obviously the problem here i think is the is the definition rather than the activities yeah. so i think there's really something to be said for for seeing for seeing that you know things like uh climate change will complicate this people want to say well but things we do now are really going to matter forever and and i don't think that's false but i also think again on an individual level you had better not think that the only reason to uh volunteer at a in a conservation setting near your house or something should be that it's going to save the planet forever <laughs> because right, right. that's going to be there's going to be no reason to do even those small things if that's your if that's your definition yeah, I mean, I just want to read some of the lines from um, 4,000 Weeks. And just, I don't think we said this at the beginning. Um, 4,000 Weeks is the length of a life, right? Uh, very approximately. Very approximately. I went for the, went for the, the, the headline grabbing But it sounds... Figure, but yes. It's, I mean, to put it in that kind of finite term, that's so interesting how that just, how it... How it... Um, you know, ref, you know, just kind of shifts your imagination to think of it rather than four thousand weeks instead of years. And I, I think that you know, we don't get many years of life, yeah. but they seem to last for a long time, right? So it's in a way, it's kind of fine, yeah. and we get a huge number of days. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. We tell ourselves that we can easily waste them, but weeks is a very strange way of putting it, and I think it. That's why I'm drawn to it, you know, because it doesn't feel like you a don't lot. get very many. No, but it's really easy to waste a whole one yeah. without really or to wonder where <laughs> a whole right. the last six of them went or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. So I want to read something you wrote. So no wonder it comes as a relief to be reminded of your insignificance. It's the feeling of realizing that you'd been holding yourself all this time to standards you couldn't reasonably be expected to meet. And this realization isn't merely calming but liberating because once you're no longer burdened by such an unrealistic definition of a life well spent, you're free to consider the possibility that many more things that you previously imagined might qualify uh, sorry, to consider the possibility um, that, you, that many more things that you, 
than you'd previously imagined might qualify as meaningful ways to use your finite time. You're free, too, to consider the possibility that many of the things you're already doing with it are more meaningful than you'd supposed, and that until now you'd subconsciously been devaluing them on the grounds that they weren't significant enough. From this new perspective, it becomes possible to see that preparing nutritious meals for your children might matter as much as anything could ever matter, even if you won't be winning any cooking awards, or that your novel's worth writing if it moves or entertains a handful of your contemporaries, even though you know you're no Tolstoy, or that virtually any career might be a worthwhile way to spend a working life if it makes things slightly better for those it serves. It's lovely. Um... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I have this thought experiment. I'm tempted I, to say I couldn't put it any better okay, myself. Okay, yeah, no, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have this thought experiment that I play that I've that I've played for a long time, and it's it's always on my mind right now because we live in this time where everything feels existential, and in some ways, you know, it's not like. In so many objectively true ways, you know, there's nothing worse about, you know, 2021 than there was about 1918, say, right? But, um, but our challenges are existential. Um, and uh, I think about if, you know, if our, let's say our species survives and our, our descendants look back or you know historian looks back at our moment a hundred years from now like what will they see and I often think most of what we are obsessed about they won't see it all you know will they will they even see Twitter will you know will, will, will Donald Trump's pregnancy at uh, pregnancy presidency <laughs> I, I want to know about that <laughs> i don't know where that came from all right another time we'll talk Breaking about that news. i'll go see a therapist um, <laughs> um you know will any particular president you know really be remembered um, what will they see and it may just be it may just be you know what we were doing or failing to do in terms of owning our, our footprint on the planet. It might just be refugees, you know? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious if you, I mean, you've written a lot about conscious, you've written some wonderful things about consciousness as one of the things we're, we're grappling with. I mean, I wonder if you think about, you know, is this something that you think about? Or if, if I ask you, like, what fascinates you? about what might be happening now that we barely heed or pay attention to um, that might be what is seen when time becomes history. I really love this. Uh, this is an answer to the question, I think. I really love this. Um, this, I guess it's a thought experiment that the philosopher Brian McGee uh, used that I mentioned in the book where... Um, if you sort of imagine a chain of of, of centenarian lives through the through history, so uh, yes, yeah, you know, um, uh, every all the way through history, there have been some people who lived to a hundred, even when life expectancy was much shorter on average. And every day that somebody turned a hundred, there was a baby being born somewhere. So you could easily imagine 
these chains of end-to-end, hundred-year lives, people who could, in theory, have met specific people, you know. And if you do it that way, you find that, like, the Renaissance was, what, six, seven lifetimes ago, and yeah. um, the G's time of Jesus, about... 20, 20 or so lifetimes yeah. ago and the golden age of the pharaohs 35 lifetimes ago and the whole of human civilization based on on a conventional definition 60 lifetimes ago it's like yeah. it's it's nothing. nothing um and yet we think of these kind of periods right it's like classical antiquity and the middle ages and the renaissance as if they are these kind of huge glacial periods and, well, firstly, I think that's just fascinating because it shows how quick everything has, how, yeah. how fast everything has happened and and how, uh, you know, what gets retained from each of those periods feels like these kind of huge, timeless, or huge, slow-moving changes and would mean very little to the people who lived in... Right, in, in, in <laughs> almost the, like it's in, completely alien to us, right? Like disconnected right, right. from us entirely. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet, as others have pointed out, you know, this will be a, a period as well. Like what, what, mm-hmm. what, we're, what we're doing now will be characterized by some, some basic single notion like uh, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or uh, the Dark Ages or whatever. Um, as to what that will be, I mean, what this is the era of, uh, I, I, I just... I don't even know how to go about starting to think about that yeah. that that question for the reason that you for the reasons that you that you say. I mean, it's like the the perspective doesn't seem takeable from from now. I mean, I think that uh, I think that in good ways or terrifying ones, artificial intelligence could come to be the yeah. defining characteristic of where we of what we're doing that feels like it could uh, lead to decisive total threshold changes in in everything but i mean to to pretend to know that with any kind of certainty would be to i mean it would be absurd i i i think the i actually think the sort of the not knowing is 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 interesting here and i and i i, I use this metaphor i don't remember where it occurred to me but this idea that you know we're we're all in the position of stonemasons working on a cathedral of the kind that like in my hometown of york that you know would have taken hundreds of years to build most yeah. of the people who who worked on that would have had no expectation of being there for the opening day you know it just wasn't the that wasn't the point you're just placing a brick and um and another one and another one and having no expectation of of knowing where it's where it's heading um and i think we we're all we're all in that situation anyway it's just a question of whether we yeah we don't some of us don't think so but we are yeah right yeah and it it also it just kind of circles back to that to that interesting um not just liberation that but kind of permission to attend to what is right in front of you that this this idea of cosmic insignificance right that right no again i'm sort of 
I'm mm-hmm. trying to issue this this um, advice mm-hmm. to myself and mm-hmm. anyone else who wants to listen in um, that th- that there is a kind of a a grandiosity that you can let go of. There's a and I it, it may sometimes manifest in a grandiose way. I think it can manifest in a very sort of self um, abasing way as well. But yeah. there's a there's a thing we're trying to make ourselves into that we don't have to make ourselves into mm-hmm. and indeed couldn't and that like life in all its fullness is on the other side of is on the the other side of that it's um yeah. it, it's not through achieving it it's through uh realizing its impossibility you have this phrase um which i think you credit uh a Swiss psychologist and scholar of fairy tales, Marie-Louise von Franz. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll just read this. Um, she said, there is a strange attitude and feeling that one is not yet in real life. For the time being, one is doing this or that, but whether it is a relationship with a woman or a job, it is not yet what is really wanted. And there is always the fantasy that sometime in the future, the real thing will come about. The one thing dreaded throughout by such a type of man, but I think speaking as a woman, that can happen to us too, is to be bound to anything, whatever. There is a terrific fear of being pinned down of entering space and time completely and of being the unique human that one is. That phrase, really that's what we're talking about in this whole conversation, right? Entering space and time completely. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that passage. And, you know, she's writing about the the Jungian archetype of, mm. the, of the puer, which is a, which is not necessarily at all only in men but is but in Jungian psychology is a masculine it's a young masculine energy I suppose but I really think that it's a sort of universal cultural uh idea that I'm sort of commandeering it and taking it co-opting it for for wider purposes there this notion that that it's going to be later that we have things together and really, you know, there'll be a moment of truth. Yeah. And that's when we're going to sort of enter into things. And it, it's already not true. We're already as, <laughs> as, as here as yeah. we are ever going to be. Yeah. But there is that shift that comes from, I almost want to say, resigning yourself to that fact. Um, there, is a, there is a sort of inner entering into it that you can choose to do or, or not do. Um, and life just sort of feels a bit like a dress rehearsal until you, until you do. You know, I, I, th- I think that even as I was reading that, I mean, I think that what's being described also is a move. I mean, I think that that feeling of wanting to get to real life is, is, is you know, I think I associate it so closely with my childhood and adolescence. You know, I think there's something in us um, and part of, you know, growing older, growing up, you know, hopefully gaining a little bit of wisdom is that's, that's, that starts to diminish. It starts to calm down. Um, 
And so if you and I are having this conversation about these things, these truths as truths that we could start to tell tell ourselves in public kind of culturally that we can we talk about this can and and maybe our maybe our technologies force us right to this reckoning that's that's my that's my hopeful vision of what the person will see a hundred years from now um, uh, then you know then maybe we maybe this becomes kind of a growing up a maturing of our species um, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it because one of the th- things that one or two people have said about this book in a sort of not in a hostile way but in a kind of affectionately critical way I suppose is whether it's kind of a whether it's kind of a midlife crisis book right whether it's the kind these are the kind of insights that um you need to have you need to get to the place where you've tried that that um that provisional kind of existence where you've where you've tried all the methods to achieve mastery and Mm. dominance of time and Mm. they've failed before you can sort of move through to this maturity and one of the things i sort of respond then is like on on the one hand, I take that point. I don't think I could have written this book um, 10 years ago. But you also see a lot of these kind of approaches to limit, the, the, a lot of this kind of sense of people exhausting their limits. I think you see the age at which that happens, getting younger and younger. And you read all mm, these yeah. reports and read yeah. amazing, extraordinary reporting now on burnout as something that happens to people in their 20s and 30s yeah which was, you hear people which talking now about that. a quarter life crisis right right <laughs> and you know burnout yeah. was never something that you were supposed to encounter in your 20s and 30s yes. so i think that you know with a little bit of poetic license you could almost talk about a societal um midlife crisis who knows if it's the middle of the time of, of the length of civilization okay. but um that that we're sort of in the in an analogous way to to it to the way a, a, an individual runs up against these things at a certain stage in life, we do seem to be running up against them. Yeah. Uh, as a as a society in a in a different in a different way, um, and sort of realizing that certain ways of trying to get a handle on everything are are really have failed not us. Going to work. Yeah. 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 And they distort us. They have distorted mm. us. Um. I feel like you, you know, this is just kind of a further point to all the things we've been talking about. But, you know, it's not it's not it's not just that it's planning and controlling and managing time is not possible and it's nonsensical. But there's something you write also those moments. Life shows its imperfection, brokenness, resistance to our plans. And this is, again, just this core observation of of um of wisdom of spiritual depth such experiences however welcome often appear to leave those who undergo them in a more in a new and more honest relationship with time and then you say and this is this is this is what i think the challenge for our species is the challenge is whether we might attain at least a little of that same outlook before agonizing loss comes our way 
can we grow up enough to make that move without needing to fail, to be in a state of utter despair and burnout, I think, is the question. Yeah, and it's parallel, isn't it, to that question of can we hold on to epiphanies from this pandemic period, realizations and shifts in perspective? Can we hold, I mean, maybe it's not exactly the same question, but like, can we, can we hold on to these uh, ways of seeing the world once life stumbles back towards something like normal and we're not in that, that crisis and maybe plenty of people on a personal level will not have gone through uh, 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 a severe crisis. So those, those perspective shifts will have been had without agonizing yeah. loss for, 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 for at least some or do, do these epiphanies and these realizations just just fade unless unless you've you've really personally suffered? I, I don't I don't know. Yes, we've got to try. <laughs> that, yeah, that gets back to we have to train our attention on it, right? We have to decide to attend to it and know that we will get that we will that we will be distracted that, that we will be distracted anyway, right? But right, and just to sort of I don't know. In my own, I feel like the. the the thing that I can easily ask of myself and therefore maybe of other people too is to is to just sort of keep pushing forward into that mild discomfort. Yeah. Obviously, the, the passage you read comes after writing about people who've gone through tragedies that yeah. are, the word discomfort isn't appropriate. But the very mild discomfort that our finitude creates in us is just the discomfort of, you know, uh writing this next paragraph that I'm working on instead of going to social media, um, listening to what um, the other person is saying instead of just rehearsing what I'm going to say as soon as they've finished stopping, uh, as soon as they finish talking. Um, Just that mild discomfort. It's the same discomfort, I, I, I argue, but in an incredibly mild form. And it is actually doable. Like, you can actually do that and you'll be fine. You can do it multiple times a day and you'll be you'll be fine every time. Hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, um, um, this question of what it means to be human is obviously a very large question. and But I'm, I'm curious about how this, uh, this exploration of the nature of time um, has, uh, you know, where, where, how has it evolved your sense of what it means to be human? I mean, how right now would you kind of just start to answer that question in in this light? Uh, Wow. It's a, it's a big one. Yeah. Um, I, I think it is that appreciation for the, the way in which, um, everything sort of worth doing everything creative or generative or growth oriented all the rest of it that that loss is kind of the inevitable flip side of that so it's that sort of it's that duality of experience that you know it's most obvious in the case of parenting where it's almost a cliche right every new every new extraordinary thing that a small child does is is the end of the time before that yeah that time but it but it occurs in everything all through the all through the um 
day and all through one's one's work, uh, all through everything. That that to that to do anything is to forego all sorts of other things. To to become a to move to a different place is to no longer be in the other. You know, yeah. just that just that yeah. sort of absolute inescapable duality and you know it doesn't i'm this isn't some recipe for making the pain go away but but i experience a sort of amazing you know drop of my shoulders and all the rest of that when i whenever i am can recall that like this is this is just built in this is like mm. how it is mm. this is not because i didn't find the the mm. the sneaky way out of it yet um and if you sort of do this a little bit more it tends to you you tend to it 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 starts to sort of justify itself as a way of living because because you you do sort of have a little bit more faith in things unfolding and Mm. then you do it for a few days and you find that that things just carried on unfolding and it was okay and then you can sort of ease your way into it and i i definitely have done that of course it's two steps forward and one step back um uh as uh those i live with would doubtless testify (laughs) (laughs) and anything else anything that i didn't ask you about that feels really critical i mean we've talked about what it means to be human so we've pretty much uh exhausted the, <laughs> the boundaries i i keep coming back to that in my mind to that quakerism question mm-hmm. and then i've got a whole jewish side of my family as well yeah, where, I read that where too, my yeah. my yeah. grandmother uh got out of nazi germany when i'm and i'm always sure that that's got something to do with this sort of need to feel like you're controlling the way things unfold yeah. because you can imagine how that would have got into it. I don't particularly, it's not that I think you should have asked me many more biographical questions, but I'm just, I, I don't know the answer to them. So they, they continue to sort of mm-hmm. feel compelling to me because it, it seems like, I don't know, there's, there's, there's lots for me to think about there, but no, I, I think you, you, we, we covered the ground. Absolutely. Well, that's good. I'm glad I sent you away with some questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. I'm jealous that you're in Yorkshire. I, I, uh, I, I could, I could fall into the trap here and think if only I had managed my life better, I would be in Yorkshire right now, but I'm going to resist that. No. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for this beautiful work. And, um, and we'll let you know, I think we're going to air this in the new year at, when people are making new year's resolutions. Brilliant. And I'm excited about that. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. Look forward to it. Okay. Blessings. Thank you. Yeah. Bye Krista.